listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is an award-winning film editor, John Gilbert. Editors are incredibly underrated talents. Editing is seen as a technical field, but it's also incredibly creative. In fact, editing is one of the most creative processes within filmmaking. And that's why I'm looking forward to talking to one of the best editors going around today. John Gilbert is an Academy Award winner for Hacksaw Ridge. Plus, he's also an Oscar nominee for Lord of the Rings. John. Welcome to Shoot It Now. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Mate, great to have you on. I want to come back to editing being in the technical field, but it's also very creative. When John Gilbert first started out, what were you attracted to the most about editing and how did you get your first gig? Well, interesting. I was I was at university and I was doing a, a BA in history and anthropology and various things. And I got a job in my summer holidays at the National Film Unit in Wellington, which was out in Miramar in those days. It was just going to be like a two to three month summer job and I'd go back to university. I, I got the bug, I guess. And at the end of the holidays, I said, how about I stay on? So uh, that was that. I worked for the film unit for about six months and then I got a job at Television New Zealand. I liked the look of the editing department, so I wormed my way in there. And um, I was interested in content. I was interested in story. I was interested in the meaning of a film, the meaning of a story, what it was all about, what it was trying to achieve. So I think a lot of people were attracted to photography, but, you know, camera work, being out on set, being sort of cool and uh, being in a sort of a, a cool industry, whereas I was quite happy to be behind the scenes crafting stories into a sort of a meaningful package because I was interested in what they were trying to communicate to the audience. And uh, writing, directing and editing, I think, are the three keys in that sort of chain. And, and I see editing as the uh, last draft of the script, really. Here's a question on behalf of all new editors and, I guess, existing ones as well. When you get a new project and you pull in all of that footage, what is your process for, let's say, breaking down a titanic mass into a bunch of smaller lifeboats so that the material is easy to access and also to make sense of? Because if you don't, searching for clips across the entire edit of a film is going to cost you a hell of a lot of time during the edit process. So if you don't get that right, that's a major problem, right? Yeah, well, the film comes in every day and if it's a scripted project, everything is slated and I know what scene it's meant for. So the assistant will set it up in a very tidy way so that I can find anything quite quickly. You know, when I first started working, we used to get 20, maybe 30 minutes of footage a day when it was shot on film and people were very careful about their shooting ratios. But once we moved to digital shooting, it's more common to get three hours of footage a day. So that is a big challenge in terms of getting through, looking at it and making sense of it. I always keep straight behind the, the crew. So each day I want to be on top of it and have an assembly of what they did the day before. What I would do is I would look at the director's preferred takes to start with, which um, is not necessarily the takes that will end up in the film, but they'll give you a guide to what the director was thinking or what he, was, what he preferred on the day. I, I'll be looking through the footage, looking for the key moments. I'll identify in the script what I think the key moments are in each scene. 
and I'll try and find the footage which best could be the focus of the scene. And then I'll work out from that, uh, working out a way to start the scene, how to get to those key moments, how to incorporate them, how to make the film work with those key moments. That assembly I do as I get time through the rest of the shoot and I join scenes in either side of it, I'll, I'll refine it. I'll just keep refining it whenever I've got time so that uh, by the time I get to the end of the shoot, I've got a, a playable version of the film as scripted. You mentioned that your assistant will set it all up. What are some of the key things that you're telling your assistant for that mountain of information coming in? How do you set that up into your bins for easy access? Each scene has a bin of its own, so and those scenes will be numbered in order. So I will have folders with a selection of scenes in them, maybe 10, 15 scenes per folder, and there'll be a numerical order through the film. And I've got a script in front of me, which I can reference at any point. And in the cut, each scene is labelled. If I look at any particular clip, it will have the scene number in the slate. So if I can then match back to the bin that that came from, I'll find all the rest of the material for that scene. And uh, it'll be in order of the scene before it and the scene after it will be, the bins for them will be sitting next to it. That seems pretty straightforward. I think for documentaries and unscripted shows, it must be a lot more difficult. I've worked um, predominantly on scripted things for the past um, 15 or 20 years, I guess. And an editor in the cutting room is very much like a director there putting together the assembly, it's the editor all alone with this vast amount of material constantly piecing the biggest jigsaw on the planet, yet by the time the process is finished, somehow, almost against all the odds, an editor has managed to do what seemingly seemed an impossibility at the beginning. It's another thing that we just take for granted with editors, letting them go off on this quest of making sense of the material that they've been handed over. Has there ever been that one project, and you don't have to tell me the title of the film, that was a much bigger mountain to tame from an editor's point of view that at the time you thought, uh, I don't know, this could be next to impossible or, or one that took the most amount of time to figure out? Well, Lord of the Rings was uh, a two-year two-year job and um, it was shot over a period of over a year. So that, that was pretty daunting. And also the visual effects component of that was quite new to me. And that, that day we, we weren't used to films in New Zealand that had so many visual effects. So that was pretty daunting. But since then, I did a project. I did a project in the States, which was a surfing movie. It was a big wave. It was called Mavericks, actually, or Chasing Mavericks. It was about big waves at uh, Mavericks, which is in Santa Cruz off the California coast. The 40-foot waves were only there for four or five days a year. So the days when the surf was breaking, they had a crew out there with, I don't know, 20 cameras, and uh, they would come back and they'd have 70 hours of footage, which they shot over a day or two on the weekend. So I got a, another editor in there to go through and try and cut it down to the useful footage because there was a lot of footage of where nothing was happening. And uh, when it was happening, there was 20 cameras on it, cameras in the water from the shore everywhere, uh, on jet skis out in the middle of it. That was kind of impossible, i got to say. But uh, it turned out pretty pretty good in the end. I think this, the surfing sequences are the best sequences in the film. Ha- having 70 hours of footage to send on you on a Monday morning is um, <laughs> pretty, pretty daunting. 
That is a massive amount. Um, editing is a muscle that you use, and much like when somebody starts running to get fit, uh, you slowly build up and become a better runner. How true do you think that is for editing? Oh, I think that is quite true. I started out, the very first job I did editing, I was editing television news on 16mm film. Quite often the, the footage would arrive at 5pm or 5.30pm even, and it had to be on air at 6 o'clock. So I learned quickly to make decisions, just jump into action and do something. And I think some editors struggle to make decisions, junior editors particularly, because there's an infinite number of ways you, you can um, put a film together. And I think about it quite often. I've been looking at a film and I think if there was another edit on this, it would be an entirely different film. And I don't think people understand that the nuances within the footage, the performances, the choices are you know, there's so many different ways you could put it together. The in, the editor's input creates a completely different film to what another editor would make. And these differences in some cases would be quite subtle, but in other cases, I think they could be quite massive. A, a film could have an entirely different uh, emphasis. I mean, obviously the director has a big say, and if it's going in a different direction to what they want, they'll they'll weigh in. But a lot of the small choices you use in terms of performance and so on, they're, they're very particular, very individual. So I think an editor does have a massive impact on the film. I think the more you do it, the more you get confident. I think when you're first starting out, you're thinking about matching action and the more sort of mechanical aspects of editing. But once you've been doing it for a while, those become sort of second nature and you don't really concern yourself with those. It's more important to be picking the right moments in the footage. It, it's more important to be the choices you make and uh, picking the right pieces, getting the right emphasis on, you know, it's not so much action oriented, it's uh, pace and tone and subtext. I mean, the story quite often tells itself through uh, the script. You can see what happens in the scene, but it's how it happens. It's the subtext. It's what people are thinking when it's happening, who you're watching, whose reactions uh, are important in a scene and all these things are, are not on the page these are decisions you make in the edit yeah you get beyond physical continuity and things like that they, they become, become less important as, as you go on as an editor Interesting talking about if you had a hundred different editors, you'd have a hundred different films. Everybody's nuanced in different ways. It'd be very interesting to see in the future if there was some sort of algorithm that they developed for editing and it just stitched everything together. But coming back to the confidence, confidence in editing, that's a that's a real thing. Like you the more confident you are, the better the result you're going to have in the edit. That's true, but you can be confident in the process. I think when I first started out, I thought I had to be able to answer all the questions straight away. I had to be able to solve all the problems and know what to do. Now, I don't. I, don't. I trust in the process. I'm confident that if I dig in and keep working and keep going forward, the answers will show up. And I think that's an important thing to know that you don't have to solve all the problems immediately. You don't have to have all the answers. You need to engage in sort of a conversation with the film and the footage and the director and just keep making it better and go forward and trying to define exactly what the film is about, what are the themes of the film, what's the focus. And these things change as you go forward, as you collaborate with the director and uh, as you show it to various people, you get very close to the film and there are a lot of things you start to take for granted. You've got to try and put yourself in the shoes of a person seeing the film for, for the very first time 
And it's quite difficult to do when you've watched it a hundred times. So uh, you've got to have little tricks to give yourself some distance from the material. If you're watching the film from beginning to end every day, I think that's a mistake. I think you've got to work on little pieces of it and then treasure your experiences of watching the whole film and, and use them as a way to be that first audience for the film. Take it out of the editing room, put it on a TV at home with some other people, take it to a screening room, watch it in different environments, things like that help, help you see it for the first time. I think you bring up a really good point, and that is trusting the process and not to rush the process. Um, probably somebody starting out in editing, they may be inclined to rush things along rather than just to let things breathe a little bit. And that comes with experience over time and what to look at. Perhaps you might have a scene that's a problem. Uh, you might want to put it on the back burner for a couple of days just to mull over, stew over what are some of the different angles that you could approach that scene from. Because time is quite interesting with editing. The, the more time that you have, the more time you have to iron out the crinkles. But not necessarily somebody new to editing will view it like that. Is that what you, you find? I, I think when I first put together a scene, it's very important just to do something. So maybe you don't really know what the scene's about. You haven't got it figured out. So you put together a version of it and then put it aside for a few days and then come back and view it. And, and your impression of it will be quite different a couple of days later after you've been away from the nuts and bolts and the detail of it. Quite often find that things that you've been wrestling with, which you thought were important, turn out not to be important at all and uh, the issue is something completely different. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's very important not to overwork a scene the first time you're dealing with, with the material. Put it together, put it aside, move on to something else. And if you think it's a problem scene, come back a few days later and have another look at it because the problems could be quite different to the ones you, you thought you had. A cinematographer is always an actor's best friend because they know with a master cinematographer at work, it's their job to make the actor look the best that they can. And the same can be said for an editor who is constantly correcting an actor's performance, which can be anything from head movement, eye blinks, a good smile from a bad one, a reaction that's wrong, a piece of dialogue replacement, whatever the case, an editor has equal power in the same way a cinematographer does for making an actor not only look good, but be credible within their character's arc, which all leads to a better portrayal of performance. So, so John, give our listeners an overview of some of the ways you improve performances of actors through editing. Well, that is one of the key tasks with the editor is going through an actor's material. You're always looking, I'm, well, I'm always looking for the performance that I believe. The worst thing you can have is an actor that's self-conscious, that's constantly stopping and starting and is too aware of the camera. A performance is taken from any number of takes. It's, it's all the moments. If you haven't got a good reading of a particular line, you can always play that line off somewhere else, play it on someone else's reaction. Any bad performance, any performance you don't feel is real, I think takes you out of the film. And there's nothing worse than bad performance. If bad performance shows up early in a film, I'll quite often just sort of walk away. Or it switches me off totally. So, uh, you know, quite often we'll use the dialogue from one take against the picture for another take. You know, size of shots important. Poor performance in a big close-up is, is much worse than a poor performance in a wide shot. 
you know, there's any number of tricks to help an actor along. But, um, the main thing is the film, of course. It has to serve the film. If it's your lead actor and the film hinges around them, you you know, you have to, you work a lot on, on their performance. And I've certainly, I mean, rescued is a big word, I, I suppose, but I, I've certainly improved made some actors look a lot better than I thought they were in the dailies. It's tough being an actor. I, I think it's, it's one of the toughest jobs there is because you're you're up there naked on the screen. Uh, everyone can see every little nuance of what you're doing. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, how you would remove yourself from that desire to be conscious of how people are seeing you, but that's something they've got to do. So, you know, I have a lot of regard for, for them and the work they do. I wouldn't want to do it for the world. <laughs> No, you're right. It's it is the hardest job going around. I've heard actors compliment or pay thanks to a cinematographer. Have you ever had an actor in your career say thank you, John, for the way that you made me look? Maybe not as, in as many words. <laughs> you know, I mean, a cinematographer is there on set with the actors all the time. So an actor will probably give a cinematographer a lot more feedback. The editor's there working away with the performances when the actor's gone, gone somewhere else. So there's probably not as many opportunities for the actors to be nice to us. Quite often so he- we'll show up when they're doing their looping, their ADR, and, uh, you know, you might get the odd compliment. I remember Andrew Garfield on Hacksaw Ridge, he spent a, a reasonable amount of time in the editing room and he, he was reasonably complimentary I think an actor will always question there'll always be something they, they want to uh, to fix and I think also it's very difficult for an actor to to look at a film objectively and they're seeing themselves whereas I'm seeing the character so it's very difficult for them to uh, have input. A lot of directors don't like an actor to look at the dailies for that very reason you don't want them being conscious of, of how they're looking on the screen so what was the process with Andrew Garfield uh, in the edit room? How, how did that come to be? We shot the film in Australia. When we were doing the final editing and sound, sound work, he happened to be in LA, so he came in and he had a look at it, you know, as a courtesy, I, I guess. And he had some ideas about one key scene. And I sat with him for a day or two, and we tried all sorts of different variations. But uh, when Mel looked at it, he said, no, no, go back to what you had before. <laughs> so, um, And Andrew seemed to buy that in the end. And he, he got an Oscar nomination for his performance anyway, so it didn't do him any harm. Um, and he was fantastic in the film as well. You know, he, he was absolutely perfect as that character. I can't imagine anyone else doing it. Oh, yeah, he did a fantastic job, no doubt about that. But it's often just turning over that rock, you know, with him coming in for those couple of days. You explored, didn't quite work. Mel Gibson at the end of the day said, no, let's go back to the original stuff. And yes, you're right. I mean, there's so much footage being shot and what ends up on the screen is, is 1% of what was shot. So for an actor to think, oh my God, there must be something else in there I did which was better than that. It's understandable, I'm sure. And what's more difficult for you, editing a compelling dialogue-driven scene or an action scene? The most difficult scene to edit is a long dialogue scene, actually. And um, I've had the odd director raise their eyebrows when I've said that. But I think action scenes are easier in a lot of ways. You know, the action tends to drive the edit to some extent. Whereas a complex dialogue scene will often have a lot of story and a lot of important moments in it. And you've got to hold the audience for three, four minutes over two people talking to each other. Some directors have sort of quibbled. They said, oh, surely there's more difficult things than that. But I said, no, no, no. Uh, Long dialogue scene is the one. And then, of course, it's compounded if there's not enough coverage of that scene, too. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, it's difficult to keep using the same close-up or, you know, an intense dialogue scene. The performance has to be pretty good to be able to hold a small number of shots. And hopefully, you know, you'll use shot size to take the audience in and out of the more important moments, not just coverage in terms of shot size, but also performance. Quite often, the things that you're looking for aren't necessarily the dialogue. It's the right reactions. It's the right changes. You know, a good dialogue scene will have changes in tempo, in pace, and so on. Because a good scene should surprise you. It should take you somewhere and then take you somewhere you weren't expecting it to go. Every scene should end twisting the story forward in another direction. And uh, you're always looking for those moments. So you know the script inside out by the time the dailies show up on day one. How does your mind process what comes in? In other words, are you starting to analyse anything that may not be matching the script or do you go with what you are viewing and remain open to what you're seeing? What sort of approach do you take down that track? I think it's important to react to the footage rather than be locked into what what the script was suggesting. I think quite often you will go in a different direction to what you were expecting. So you want to kind of forget about the script to some extent. I think you want to keep it in the back of your mind, but you want to be open to other possibilities because things happen on set that that could be better than what, what was in the script. It's interesting, I say, when I read the script and the dailies show up and it's not as good as what I imagined, that's always disappointing. But sometimes the dailies show up and they're better, they're better than what you imagined because what's on the page isn't always what's in the director's head. The director may have some idea how the action plays out and you've got a, a script with just the dialogue in it, so you kind of imagine that. Yeah, when it comes in and the action somehow compounds or magnifies what was in the script in a in a good way, that's always incredibly uh, exciting. But yeah, sometimes it comes in and it's not as good as you imagined it. So you've got to be open to the possibilities. I think you've got to be reacting to the footage that you get because now you're making a film and what you've got is what's on the screen, not what was on the page. So you've really got to just be flexible. You've got to flex with what is coming in and not be too predetermined on what you were expecting. I actually learned a very valuable lesson uh, filming coverage in a scene, which in my head, I was running through how the edit would cut it together, sort of like a bit of a pre-visualization thing. And part of the problem I was doing that was that we were running short on time to shoot the scene. It actually taught me to never cut in my mind as I was filming because it completely boxed me into a corner that made it really hard to make that edit uh, work. What would you say to directors regarding that? I've often said to directors, don't cut the scene in your head because invariably you need something else. And And if the coverage, you stop the coverage, you stop the wide shot at the beginning, after the first four lines, you say to yourself, oh, you'll only use the wide shot at the beginning. That's just so often not true. You want a wide shot to let a scene breathe halfway through or at the end or anywhere in the scene. Yeah, and I've been boxed in many times by a director breaking a scene down into parts and, and doing a bunch of coverage up to a certain point and then uh, a new set of shots from that point. And the overlap, the point where you overlap, they think, oh, you're going to cut here. But quite often you want to cut two lines before that, two lines after it, and you haven't got it. And and making that transition, it becomes very difficult. Or you cut the scene in half. You know, when you're, when you're cutting a movie down, you, you end up 
losing a lot of dialogue, cutting off tops and tails or the middle of scenes. And if you haven't got the coverage, you, you can end up in trouble. Um, that's for sure. So yes, you, I, I think cutting the scene in your head is, is something to be avoided. I mean, Obviously, if you've run out of time, you've got 10 minutes to shoot a scene and you shoot it in one shot at the end of the day and there was no other alternative, you know, you make what you can of it. But uh, if, you, if you can, I, I would certainly encourage people to shoot um, decent coverage all the way through. There are directors that won't be as flexible with editors running off in different directions from the script. They prefer to keep it somewhat contained in the story. It's their vision, their film, which is being realised. Okay, that's fair enough. An editor has sometimes that fine line of knowing what to fight for and push for and when to retract. I guess a good editor is like a good diplomat who knows the art of communication. Is that how you see it? I think that's true. I always put the film together as scripted during the shoot. And if I've got other ideas about things, I will quite often keep them to myself or do like a B version on the side if I have time, which I will show to the director at the right point. But there, there could be things that I strongly disagree with uh, during the process. And, you know, I can make a suggestion. If the director says, no, I don't want to do that, I'll just put it aside. Because quite often the things that you feel strongly about, they might, might not end up in the film. Or, you know, you've got, say, 20 things that you felt quite strongly about, and you get to the end of the film and there's only four of them left by the time you've finished editing. And then you can have a conversation when you're getting closer to the end, if you still feel strongly about it. But I think, you know, you've got to say what you think. You know, there's no point in having a fight about it. The director's the director and, you know, they may well be right. Even though you're confident in what you're saying, you still have to understand that it is a collaborative process. And the director's also got um, a lot of insight into what he's trying to do. And there is a chance that um, you're wrong and he's right. So um, carry on. And if anything really offends you towards the end of the film, stick your hand up again. And maybe at that stage, he'll agree with you. You just don't know, he or she. And I think the only time that a director can watch their film for the first time, like an audience does, or as close to it as possible, is when an editor is presenting that assembly that we're talking about. And if an editor has made a B version, like you mentioned, one version is based on the script, the other version is based on the editor's vision. And if an editor asks me which version that I want to watch, the editor's version or the B version, I would always go with the editor's choice because I know what the script is. And if you have trust in your editor, it's a moment that you should be looking forward to with enthusiasm to see their cut and to be taken on a ride with your own film. So how do you present that first assembly option or options? You, you have your, your script option and your B. Would you ever have maybe a, a C version? Quite often, I, I would have a number of versions. I wouldn't present them in as a whole film. I wouldn't show the director a, a version of the film with a whole lot of different choices in it. What I like to do is I will assemble the film as per the script. And then I like to walk through the film with the director, you know, reel by reel or um, not, not play the whole thing down unless they particularly want to. Because there's a lot of choices in there, a lot of things that you can be deleted quite early on. A film, the first time it's assembled, it, it plays pretty badly, I've got to say, because you've got everything in there. They say a film's never as good as the dailies and nor as bad as the first assembly. You know, you've got to be wary of that. 
but pre presenting those other bits and pieces, I'll, I'll just, as we're going through the film, I'll say, well, I, I did throw this together. What do you think about this? And the point of a, an editor being on set and cutting while they're shooting, to me, is to be able to throw up alternates for the director. Because if the director came into the room and cut the film the way they thought it should be cut with an editor just being a pair of hands, I mean, what's the point? The point of having an editor is to have another opinion and to investigate other ways of doing things. A director should make use of that opportunity, and most directors do. Most directors understand that that is a voyage of discovery, and uh, they enjoy it. A lot of them enjoy, say they enjoy the editing more than anything else, and I don't know whether they just say that to please me, but um, they, they do seem to actually enjoy it. And after the pressure of the set, when they're being pushed every day, you come, come into the editing room and you can try things, and if it's not right, you can do it again the next day. Pressure's off to some extent, and it is a voyage of discovery. I want to talk about tone. Finding the tone of a film through editing is an art form. If you have the wrong tone at the beginning of your film, you are sending the trajectory of the whole narrative story down the wrong tunnel. Good editors, even when the filming has gone off tone and there are scenes that don't match the tone of the rest of the film, editors can rework scenes, perhaps reconstructing a scene with pieces from various other scenes. Dialogue reconstruction may play a key ingredient or music might dominate over the top of dialogue, drowning out the tone that was wrong. How often, John, in your career, have you had to deal with tonal shifts that you had to re-correct and get back into the groove of the tone of the film? That's most often a problem when actors have uh, different performances, say uh, they're not as naturalistic or more comedic. Getting the performances all into the same world is, is very important. So calibrating the performances, finding takes which are more naturalistic, trying to pull them into the same world. Uh, that's what you're doing all the time when you're looking at actors' performances. I think music is important for tone. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that's intuitive, really. It's uh, You're always trying to get a consistent tone in the film. And it's something the director should be aware of as well. And if things go off kilter, you, you know, that's a serious problem in a film. And I don't think I've had any major problems with tone shifting. Do you think directors pay enough attention to the first five minutes of a film? Well, the first five minutes of the film is uh, incredibly important. Obviously, how you, how you draw an audience into the film, you don't get a second chance. If, if a film, if the audience is switched off, at the beginning of a film, you've lost them. In the cinema, you might hold them for a while, but on television, they're gone. They're off-channel surfing or whatever. So quite quite often, I will leave the beginning and the end until very late in the process because I find that we're always working on the beginning and the end. It's not always what's on the page. Again, you're looking for something which will excite the audience. You don't, you don't want to be too contrived in the way you drag an audience in. I think it's a really good idea, though, that you leave the front and the end to the end because so much changes throughout plotting the way the edit goes for the majority of the film. It's a mistake to actually try and do that whole setup at the beginning when you first start editing a film. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're trying to draw the audience into the world of the film and you need to give them enough substance so that characters are interesting but you've got to keep moving the story forward. So you're trying to do a lot of different things at once. 
there's always a balancing act between setting up the themes and the characters so that when things start to happen to them later on, uh, it has enough, you have enough emotional connection with those characters. If you go straight into story too early, quite often you'll find that you don't care enough about the characters. So it is a balancing act between those two things. You have to move it forward. And there, there are films which have got very slow beginnings, which pay off brilliantly at the end as long as the audience has the patience to stay with it. And there are other films with great bang-bang beginnings which run out of steam. So, you know, it can be misleading to have an incredibly action-packed opening. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark departed from the old way of doing things. They had brought in this idea of a seven-minute action opening as a way of starting a film, and then they went back and did the setup once they figured that they had shown the audience how exciting the rest of the film was going to be. So that was a, a new structure in a way which uh, Spielberg started with Raiders, and I think a lot of people do that now is they'll, they'll put a little five, seven-minute uh, action scene on the front. I mean, James Bond does it as well. They have their pre-story scene. I thought Hacksaw Ridge with just setting up the character at the beginning was just so well executed from an editing point of view. Right. I mean, we put on, a, uh, I can't remember how long that scene was at the beginning, but it showed you where we were going to take you once the film got going. problem with the film was, well, it wasn't a problem so much, but it had a, a long first half before you got him to the war. Let's have a look at exposition. A lot of the time when the footage comes in, some of the exposition may have already come out of the script when the filming process took place. Or alternatively, if it hasn't, suddenly you can see obvious signs of where exposition needs to come out, which changes any scene. I imagine exposition for editors is always tricky. Sometimes you are convincing not only the director, but perhaps the writer and if producers come into the room. How important is presenting different options around taking out that exposition? A lot of directors understand that various things are in the script because the script needs to is a selling document as much as it is as a shooting document. So a lot of directors understand that too much exposition kills kills a film because you want to surprise the audience. You want to keep going forward. And things that are explained in dialogue, once you've got the action of the film, soon become apparent that they're not required. Yeah, there will be scenes that the director wants to hold on to because they love them or whatever. But in my experience, a lot of directors are, are happy to lose the exposition. Something that I hate that I have a particular dislike of is dialogue where one character explains to another character something which is there just for exposition. And I always say to the director, a character would never tell another character something that character would already know. So if someone's saying something in a scene that is cle clearly is just for the audience, uh, you know, I, I would take that out. Even if it creates an exposition problem, a story problem later on, I would say, let's leave it out and see what happens. Quite often you find the audience, there's more sophisticated story-wise these days. Things keep going forward and a lot of things are self-evident. Some editors cut without using any temp music to assist them. However, most editors will use temp music, which can drive the pacing and the rhythm of the cut, even though the music doesn't form part of the score. In your experience, how do you approach all of that, especially with, I imagine, an action scene like Hacksaw Ridge? And I don't know if you were cutting to a piece of temp music, but if you were, how do you do that before the actual music cue comes in? 
Music is a difficult thing in the cut. Uh, I just did a film called Adrift where I talked with the director and we decided not to use any temp music at all. And uh, we would cut the film for the story and then we added temp music after we'd made a lot of decisions about the story. Something like Hacksaw Ridge, again, I added the music afterwards. The danger in adding music too early is that you're reacting to the tempo of the music. You're glossing over various things that you would do differently later on. So you have to be careful. A lot of composers don't want to see a scene with the temp music, and then some of them do. It can be very persuasive. Once you've got the temp music in there, you can get very used to it, and it makes it very difficult for the composer to do something that's as good as the temp music. I mean, when you're, when you're doing a temp score, you've got the scores of every film that's ever been made to draw from. So, you know, you've got some great things to use. So, yeah, you have to be careful not to fall in love with it. Hacksaw Ridge, there's some long battle scenes. The first one, I had no music at all, and I said, this is going to be entirely sound effects. And then there's another uh, battle scene uh, five, ten minutes later, and I used music and then to escalate the drama, so the emotional content, so that to make the second battle scene different from the first battle scene and to make it more emotionally kind of involving. Yeah, I mean, it was a long scene and the sound people thought, fantastic, this is all ours, it's all dialogue and gunshots and screaming and whatever, uh, explosions. It was um, pretty confronting, uh, 10, 11 minutes that battle scene was, I believe. So yeah, attempt music, you do need it because if you're showing the film to a studio or various people, it has to play like the film is going to play. So if you played it without music, I think if you're trying to sell your edit to a studio and it doesn't have music, they're going to be underwhelmed. You're going to have trouble. So you need to have music in there which feels like the music you want, which may be quite different from the music you end up with, but uh, you need it to sell the edit because the finished film will have music and most films have quite a bit of music these days. So you want to give uh, the impression of the film as it's going to be and and you need music to do that. And, you know, not only music, but the sound effects, dialogue, these days, we build a soundtrack in the Avid, which is pretty sophisticated. And people expect when they see an Avid edit to be something like the film, like a finished film, uh, which we would never have done back in the days when we were editing on film with two tracks of 35mm mag. We also do a lot of colour correction as well, so that you don't get taken out of the film by colours being mismatched. Yeah, and visual effects as well. I mean, we don't have... Um, film playing with chinograph marks on it where dissolves might happen all the effects are in there dummied up as as good as we can make them in the avid yeah people expect to see something out of the avid that looks like a finished film from there on it can only get better of course as you pull in the sound and uh, music and visual effects people it is so much more sophisticated now when you do a test screening and it hasn't been pushed through final post as you say, you've got everything. You've got the music, the visual effects. It's all playing with the color grade, and the audience has got no idea that this has still got big chunks of sound design to go, color, etc., still to happen. But in their eye, it's the film. Absolutely, and and uh, you want to get a reaction from the audience based on thinking this is the film, because the more finished it is, the more you will get a true reaction to the content of the film so people won't be saying oh well i thought that was a bit dull or whatever because there was no sound there they'll be saying it was a bit dull because it was a bit dull you know you want to be able to believe their reactions to 
attempt screening. You have to present it as in as good a shape as you can. So, I mean, those attempt screenings are a really useful tool in finishing finishing a film. You have to be careful with uh, an audience reaction, but um, because quite often audience will tell you a problem is one thing when in actual fact the problem is something else but it's it's your job to be a detective to work out what the problems are from the film after you've been sitting with them i mean if you're sitting in a temp screening you can feel when the audience is moving you can feel when they're disengaged you can also feel when they're loving the film and really engaged with it that's a, a really useful uh, experience for the editor i'm make sure I'm always at those screenings. They provide notes afterwards, but the notes are um, not as useful as the feeling of being there in the audience with a screening. You just cannot beat a test screening when all the pieces, all the elements have have come together. And then if you are setting up a questionnaire, which is what we've done numerous times, and then run a Q&A, yeah, it, you just get so much valuable information. Yeah, totally true, totally true. You quite often have the executives from the studio there as well. And, um, you know, it's a complicated situation to manage as well. I mean, people have their own opinions and their own agendas. And it's difficult when you get close to the end of editing a film. There are a lot of different opinions and you have to be careful not to um, get thrown off track either. There will always be things that people object to. Quite often it's those things that people object to which are good things in a film i mean you you want to be distinctive and have things that stand out if you've got things that stand out and are a bit different some people will object to them but there are things that you need to fight for keeping quite often so you've got all those sort of conversations to have you know a film can be ruined in the last uh, few weeks of editing and it can be also be made in the last few weeks of editing with you know you might take five ten minutes out of a film to close to the end you know also quite radical things can happen as a result of these screenings so you have to be careful and you can't always edit a film constantly thinking from an editor's point of view this is what the directors want but rather you have to edit what you want because more often than not that is maybe what the director wants but is not able to articulate. So he or she wants to see an editor's take on things. Is that how you approach your editing in general? Well, I want them to be happy in the end. I, I wouldn't say I'd be tied down. If I've, if I've got a different idea about how things should be, I'll definitely push that along. Hopefully, when they see what I've done, the way I see it is that the film will be better than either of you could have done individually. There's the director's view, the editor's view, and together the collaboration and the sharing of ideas. I mean, they'll have suggestions which I won't necessarily agree with, but in analysing that suggestion, you know, I'll have a reaction to it and maybe find what they were looking for. So together you you find the solutions. I always think that uh, the best collaborations are better than either of you could have come up with individually. I love this quote. Uh, Not sure where I heard it from, but... Every scene is a delicious dessert, and when you put them all together, you can't eat them all. So you have to pick the ones that you really like. People say that the the moment is important, but the scene is more important than the moment, and the film is more important than the scene. So you've got to be serving the big picture, and no matter how good a scene is, if it doesn't serve the big picture, you, you have to kind of do something about it, take it out. Yeah, I mean, there are some filmmakers who who make great scenes who don't make great films because they can excite you for a moment at a time for 10 minutes or whatever. But if the film isn't going forward, 
over the full two hours, then you lose the audience. And film has to be about something. It has to have story. It has to have momentum. It, it, you've got to you've got to continue to surprise your audience. The, making a, a, a good film is a, a bit of a miracle, really, when all these things come together right. And it's quite interesting in terms of, as you mentioned, if you're sitting in a cinema, you can retain the audience a little bit longer. But now with streaming services, you've got to be so on with getting a film right. But I find what I do is not necessarily give up. I will scroll through if I'm on Netflix for instance, scroll through, I'll get to a scene, I'll watch that. If that doesn't really float me too much, I'll move to the next scene. Often I will find in something that I thought was pretty dead, maybe four or five really great scenes that play really well, but the whole film just didn't hold up. If a film falls flat early on, I tend to just shut it down and go and look for something else. <laughs> and if they've set up some story idea that I really want to get the answer to, maybe I would flick down later to see what happened. Mostly I just throw it away. If it doesn't rock me, I just move on. You know, there's so many bad films out there too. So many films which don't, I don't know if I'm getting cynical, but there's so many films out there that I think I'm, that's just not good enough. I'm, I'm not going to watch that. And quite often I will, we're watching a film and I'll go off and do something else. And my wife will say, oh, it got really good after you, after you left. Because she'll stay on. She's got more endurance than me. She'll stay on and watch it through the end. She, she probably gets annoyed with me go, sitting beside her going, ugh, ugh, you know, huffing and puffing or whatever. Because <laughs> I dismiss things which I think are poor. And what's your favourite genre? Oh, I like, uh, you know, I like good human drama, I suppose. I like political thrillers. I'm not really a fantasy person. I, I like stuff about characters that I can identify with, characters that, uh, you know, could be me, put, put me in a situation which feels real to me. So that's kind of drama, modern drama or political thrillers. I like thrillers, I suppose. You know, action thriller, I prefer something that's got some emotional resonance and something with some depth, character depth. I'm not into action for the sake of it. I'm not really a Marvel guy. I love, uh, just before we wrap up, John, editing stories where a director has come up with an idea. It hasn't been shot, so you are forced to go to the lifeboat, so to speak, find a collection of shots to see if you can structure the proposition into a workable scene. I'd love to hear any example that you've been in this situation and pulled off something that perhaps when the director first mentioned it to you as an editor, you thought, well, I think that's probably going to be an impossible task. Is there anything that comes to mind? I have done that from time to time, uh, had bits and pieces of, of scenes and then played lines of dialogue on the backs of people's heads and reworked. I am reminded of one scene in Lord of the Rings where we had a forced perspective shot looking down a table with Gandalf and um, Bilbo. And forced perspective is quite difficult to do. And once you've set it up, it's very difficult to move the camera because the artifice becomes evident. And Peter had set this thing up where the camera and a table was on a fulcrum. So when you move the camera, the table moved as well to maintain the illusion of the forced perspective. Then we decided we were going to lose the first few lines of dialogue in the scene. And that's where the camera move was, which was really upsetting because it was such a great move. And so what I did was uh, I got the line where we were coming into the scene. I chopped up the dialogue to fit into um, Ian McKellen's mouth so that 
we could use the original camera move, but I put different dialogue into into his mouth so we could use that piece of the shot. So that's the, the kind of thing I think you're talking about. And what's coming up for you next? Well, um, I've got something I'm working on a New Zealand film. With the COVID thing, I'm looking at being in New Zealand for the next six to 12 months, I, I would say. I don't think there's going to be much happening overseas. I was doing a film in London with a bunch of women actors, a spy thriller it was, with Jessica Chastain and uh, Penelope Cruz, Lupita Nyong'o, Diane Kruger and Fan Bingbing. But we needed to shoot some additional footage and uh, the COVID thing hit. So I came back to New Zealand and, you know, I guess it'll get finished sometime. New Zealand right now, though, is very attractive for the outside world to come in and and film here. Well, I hope so. I, I think... Quite often we'll need to get cast and additional people in. So as long as they can get approval to, to bring in the additional people. I know uh, James Cameron's brought in his people with Avatar. They're spending a billion dollars in New Zealand. So I guess the government had to say yes. I mean, I hope smaller budget films that uh, they will also get the go ahead to bring in a, a few people if they need them. You know, if you've got international money, they need international casting to be able to make the budget work. Hopefully that's going to happen. John, such a great pleasure to talk to you all things uh, editing today I do wish you all the very best for whatever is on the horizon in the next 12 to 18 months and thanks for talking to us on Shoot It Now Thanks Craig, Uh, it was nice talking to you Uh, good luck with the podcast You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it Until next time, have a great week (laughs) 